Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's the founder and CEO of Coke Notes, a TEDx speaker, a mental health advocate, a touring musician, and the host of the Coke Notes podcast. It's Johnny Crowder. How are you doing today, Johnny? Hey, I am doing well. I need to add more things to that intro, like likes barbecue and wears a robe sometimes. Just keep adding to it. You might as well make it a resume right there. <clears throat> Actually, just... I've never worn a robe in my life until this past week. My mom got me a robe for Christmas and I thought it was such a ridiculous gift until I put it on and now I'm a convert. I'm in love with it. Well, Johnny, we're so excited to have you on the show and talk more about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is we go right to the beginning, talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Well, I'm from Tampa where I live now, which is not something I expected um, I never thought I would stay in Tampa. Um, and growing up, I was definitely the art kid that was trying to be the sports kid. <clears throat> so I played football because my brothers did. I played soccer because my brothers did. I played basketball because my brothers did. Um, ultimately, I just wanted to sit around and draw and play guitar. So it took me a while to allow myself to do that. I did pretty much anything creative, like theater or. Um, and anything that was the opposite of what my brothers did. That wasn't intentional. I just think we're wired a little differently. Did you not have like, when you were playing the sports, there just wasn't, it wasn't connecting. Like you just didn't have fun or it was just, you were just doing it just to be with your family. I was definitely <clears throat> over competitive. So to the point where I made it not fun anymore. Like if we played soccer and I kicked the ball out of bounds, I would get so mad. I would like, I would pick up the ball and just kick it like across into a different field. I definitely had a temper that made sports not feel like games. They felt like chores because I would get so angry. So as I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot um, more lax when it comes to just enjoying sports. Um, but even still, I think half of it was my temper and competitive nature growing up. But the other half was the fact that a sport was never going to be as interesting to me as like a blank sheet of paper or something. I was just always much more wired for creative things. What brought you to play the guitar or have that creative side in you? Well, there were guitars in my house growing up, but nobody played really. Like my dad had them, but he 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 had played like years before I was born. Um, and I was always curious about them. And then uh, one year my parents got me a, like the first act guitar from Walmart, like this little kitty guitar. I mean, it must've been like 20 bucks or something. It was a piece of junk and I loved it. I didn't put it down. And that, that's when I was eight, I'm 28 now. So I've been playing guitar for 20 years and I was definitely I always thought I would be a guitarist so when I started touring and being a vocalist I was like what this is totally not the role I saw myself filling on stage growing up did you have any motivations or inspirations that you kind of looked up to or someone that you looked up to I don't think I had like people that I really looked up to, but I definitely had bands, um, like the the classic bands that probably not, even people who don't listen to rock and metal know these bands like Linkin Park and Korn and Slipknot and System of a Down. Like that's, you know, when I was eight, it was the year 2000. So what's on the radio? Korn and Slipknot and Limp Bizkit and, you know, Three Days Grace and Seether. And I still love those bands now. It just, it was really important for me at that age to discover rock music because I had pretty much only heard pop and rap and like radio Disney and country. And then when I heard rock, I was like, what is this? So that was definitely pivotal for me. Radio Disney is like a flashback. Cause I remember turning it to the AM station and getting that channel. But you talking about this, like the bands and stuff, my dad kind of got me into that rock music, like the 80s and 90s as I was mm -hmm. a person. And it kind of made me appreciate music a lot more to what it is now because I'll, my family will be like, oh, what are you listening to? Oh, Rush, Def Leppard, all that. And they're like, how? I'm like, it's just great music. <laughs> I just grew up listening to that stuff and I appreciate it over time. 
Yeah. When I was a kid, pretty much what I listened to before I had a music taste was just like movie soundtrack cassettes. So we had like Beverly Hills Ninja 2, the the soundtrack on cassette, and I would jam that. And then my mom had like an Aerosmith Greatest Hits on cassette. So that was when people were like, you know, what got you going as a child musically? And I was like, any music, basically. Any time you could play any genre of music, it just gave me life. So I'm (laughs) just looking back at like, what's your favorite cassette? It's like Beverly Hills Ninja 2. (laughs) (laughs) I I wonder if that's the right movie. I think it is. I'm trying to even think of the soundtrack. Can't even think of it at this moment. Did you kind of have the opportunity to start in a band at uh, growing up, or did it not come until later? No, I was super afraid of being on stage, which is hilarious because I'm like half of my job is being on stage now. But I was super anxious. I I loved playing guitar by myself in my room. I would play for hours. But even if there was one person who wanted to watch, or if I like if I knew that my mom was outside of my door or something, I wouldn't play. I was scared. And it wasn't until high school, maybe like 15 or 16, where I was actively searching to join a band. And then I played my first concert when I was 16. And little did I know that it would shape so much of my life. Growing up, what was that dream job that you're wanting? Oh, to be a rock star, duh. I think I had a couple ideas. Like I wanted to be a ninja. I wanted to be an astronaut and a cowboy and stuff. But it's like, who pays a cowboy? Like who does his payroll, you know? Who pays a ninja or a samurai or something? So I think um, I, as I got a little older, <clears throat> I kind of gravitated towards just wanting to do music full time. And it's really all that I've ever wanted until just recently. Um, when I've obviously been working a lot in mental health. So it wasn't until college, high school, college, when I considered maybe working in the mental health field. But I mean, up until my late teens, early 20s, I was like, I'm going to be a rock star. (laughs) Did you have any challenges that you faced growing up? Or was it an easy kind of path to what you were doing? Can you imagine how boring of an interview this would be if I was like, nope, no challenges. <laughs> it was I think some people may they may not have had a challenge growing up and it didn't hit them until years <clears throat> in their life. Yeah. So I mean, I've had kind of a rough go of it. So you grow up in an abusive home, you're exhibiting self-harm symptoms, disordered eating, you're living with multiple mental health diagnoses like hallucinating um, OCD meant that I couldn't touch doorknobs or food or people. Um, So almost it was getting worse and worse to the point where I couldn't interact with other people very effectively. I couldn't, I couldn't do a lot of things. And then I think early high school, it got to the point where I couldn't complete like daily tasks. I couldn't make a sandwich. I couldn't put on my deodorant, you know? Um, And I can't, instead of describing all of them to you, um, I will just say that if you can think of a challenge related to mental and emotional health um, or my diagnoses, I probably experienced it. And it wasn't like a one-time thing. It was like, you know, I would hope that it would get better. And then a year later, it's not better. And I would hope that it would get better. A year later, I'm experiencing the same problem. So up until I started treatment in high school, it was like I had a very, very, very difficult. um, My childhood wasn't as pretty as I think it could have been. You talked about earlier that you kind of were afraid of being on stage. Was that kind of like being shy, being in front of people from the relationships you had at home or what you were going through, it kind of kept you hidden in a way? Well, I wasn't particularly popular growing up. I was definitely like the nerdy one. I like loved books. I loved drawing. Um, And I was basically, if something was cool, 
it for some reason did not appeal to me, not because it was cool, but just because pretty much all that appealed to me was like creative things, like I mentioned. And as a result, I did not have a lot of confidence about letting people know who I was because I was so used to being rejected in school, either by friend groups or girls, or sometimes I felt rejected by school counselors or teachers. Um, and my brothers definitely ganged up on me. I'm the middle child. So I think it just kind of taught me that if I keep my cards really close to my chest and don't let people know a lot about me, then they won't have enough ammo to come at me. And as a result, I just kind of turtle shelled myself in. So you didn't have anyone that you could talk to about these kind of things? Um, I think I had people that I could talk to. I just didn't because I was afraid to lose them too. I didn't want to be like, hey, I'm struggling with this thing. And for them to go, oh, that's the last straw. I don't want to talk to you. You're you know, too much baggage. That's kind of what I was nervous about was the few friends that I did have. I was nervous that they would leave if I opened up. So how did you keep focus and keep a positive mind going forward through high school and even to college? I didn't. I had a terrible negative attitude. I literally, dude, I used to wear a shirt that said negative attitudes. Like that's how negative I was that I was like, this is going to be my persona. I'm going to be a negative person. It was like looking back, I think I was just trying to cope with how angry I felt. And I was like, what if I just lean into it, uh, which was not healthy for me. Um, I think actually trying to be positive. Uh, I thought that that would start in my first year of treatment and then year two, three, four, five, all these years go by and I'm still not positive. And I think I had a girlfriend years ago, early twenties. And um, she gave me this book and it was kind of like, um, you know, imagine you have a girlfriend and she like gets you mouthwash and you're like, what are you trying to say? Oh God. I'm like, do I have stinky breath or whatever? My girlfriend at the time bought me this book called Success Through a Positive Mental Attitude. I think that's what the book is called. And I was like, what are you trying to say? That I'm negative? That I don't think positively? And she's like, yeah, kind of. Like you're a pretty negative person. And I think this book could help you. So I was leaving for tour that day when she gave it to me. And I was like, you're such a jerk. I'm going to put it in my backpack, but I won't read it. And then, you know, day one on tour, I've already read a couple chapters and I couldn't put it down. I was like, oh man, I didn't even know that I had the ability to try to think positively. So that was definitely a big catalyst for me. I need to thank her. I need to reach out wherever she is. If you're listening to this right now, thank you for getting me that book. So it almost in a way, she was kind of a person that wanted to help in a way, but didn't know how to do it. So she gave you that book to kind of maybe see, you can do it on your own. Yeah, I think most people want to help other people, but don't know how to do it. I think that everyone listening to this right now has friends who are struggling with something and they don't say anything. They don't bring it up. They don't reach out. They don't invite them to something. They don't ask them what's going on. And it's because we're freaking clueless. We spent our whole lives not talking about mental and emotional health. And then when someone we see is struggling, we go, oh, I'm so ill-equipped to handle this because I've learned never to talk about it, you know? Yeah. I think if I was, I've had those kind of moments where I've had mental health stuff, but I would be fine with someone reaching out to me and asking and letting me tell them what's going on. And then yeah. th just to have that kind of talk and interaction in a way, because I, you know that those friends are your real friends if they're going to reach out and try to help. They may not have the answers yeah. how to, but they're at least trying in a way. Yeah. I also, I have friends who will say like, hey, you know, one of my family members threatened to harm themselves. And I don't know if I should call the police or call a crisis center or whatever. And I was like, duh, a hundred percent. If you have, if someone in your life is in serious danger, you call. And what people always say is what if they're mad at me for it? And it's like, would you rather have a friend that's alive and mad at you? Yeah. Or a friend who's not alive, but you were in their good graces. Like, 
it, it has to cross this threshold where it stops becoming about you and how comfortable you are. And it starts becoming about your friend and their health. So when you were pursuing education in college, what was that path that you were going for? Well, I told my parents that I wasn't going to go to school because I wanted to be a rock star. And they said, that's not a thing. Go to college. You have a scholarship. I had a full ride scholarship um, through the IB program. Mm -hmm. And so I went to UCF in Central Florida for psychology begrudgingly because I was, I was interested in psychology. Um, and I thought if I get a real job, I would like it to be in psychology because I want to serve in the mental health realm. I want to help people who feel like me. Um, but in the back of my head, I was like, you know, I'm only here because my band isn't touring at this exact moment. And then my band got signed while I was in college. And I remember this specifically. Um, I met with my academic advisor at UCF and he said, what's your plan for next semester? And I said, I'm going to get signed to a label and tour. So I won't even be here. And he's like, can you please pick something? That's not how this works. And then my band got signed and I moved out. I, I moved out of UCF. And I remember going to my, going to my academic advisor's office and being like, no, I'm not kidding. Like it actually happened, but I finished my degree on tour. So I did go to school for psych and I just didn't think that I was actually going to put my degree to good use until way later in my life. Like I thought I was going to be touring for 20, 30 years. And then when I'm too old to tour, I can put my psych degree to work. And now it's really coming in handy. <laughs> how did you meet like your bandmates or how did your band come like, together? Well, I knew, so I'd been going to concerts like crazy and I was trying to find bands that needed members, but pretty much, I mean, if a band is at a show performing, then they have members, duh. So it's like not a good place to find bands that need members. But I just kept asking every band there, like, if you know a band that needs a member, please let me know. And a few mutual friends made a connection with this one band and I went and tried out and I was terrible. My voice was so bad. And they said, okay, seems fine. And let me join. Um, and I didn't know any of them. It was like a bunch of strangers. And then I was like, okay, I'm in your band now. I didn't vet you guys as people. Like I don't have any pre-existing relationship with you and they didn't know me. So we definitely took a big chance on each other. I love if like if someone's listening to this on audio and they're not seeing the video form, how you're holding the microphone. If we didn't know that you were a musician, I think you can definitely tell you're a musician, just how you're holding the microphone <laughs> and everything. It's like the, there's a show that was on TV. I can see your voice and they're like trying to figure out who can actually sing and they're all saying how they're holding the microphone and everything. I'm just picturing that game right now. Dang. Dude, I actually focus a lot when I tour. Um, I focus a lot on mic placement. Like when I see a really, so I'm kind of a nerd with technical stuff. And when I see a vocalist absolutely nail a vocal take, the first thing I'll say afterwards is like, wow, look at her mic placement. Look at the way she's holding her microphone. Look, and it's these little tiny subtle differences, like a one or two degree angle shift changes the way your voice passes over. It's like, I don't mean to get off on a tangent, but it was cool to hear you say, because I really nerd out about that stuff. When you're looking at those other like vocalists and musicians, are you always trying to take maybe a little bit of what they do to evolve as an individual? Yeah, but it's not, it's like half conscious and half not because part of it is me going into any concert or live music setting and thinking like, I'm a student, I'm here to learn. Um, so anything that I see is going to influence me here, but also I have to make a conscious effort to like, just be a normal person at a concert and just enjoy it and not overthink it. So it's these two parts of me that are colliding, like, Oh, you need to be studying this and using it to improve. And then the other part of me is like, shut up and move your body, you know? <laughs> So something that I've noticed with following you through social media, every concert you have, you have a word 
written on your chest. And I thought mm-hmm. that was something pretty cool. Talk about the meaning of it and how did you get inspired to do that? So I, I would imagine that a lot of people listening to this don't tour full time. Um, but they have been to concerts. So when you're at a concert and someone comes out on stage and they're like, Milwaukee, and everyone's like, yeah. And then the guy's like, man, every time we play Milwaukee, I love playing Milwaukee. This is one of my favorite cities to play. And everyone's like, woo woo. Um, that exchange, if you're on the tour, you hear that exchange 50 times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Denver, woo woo. One of my favorite cities to play is Denver, woo woo. It's every single night. And these, you know, you tour for years and the shows blend together. And as a performer, you start getting jaded. You start treating this city like that city and you start treating this venue like that venue. And it's a disservice to the people at the show, I think. Um, So when I was touring in my old band, I was noticing that in myself. Like the first couple of years you're touring full time, you're like, this is amazing. I'm a rock star. And then a few years after that, you're like, Oh, my back is sore and I'm hungry and I slept in a van last night. And, you know, you start copying an attitude that leaks through into your live show. And these people paid for the same show that, you know, just because someone shows up in the first week of tour, like because someone happens to live in one of the first cities you hit, they shouldn't get a better show than someone who lives 35 cities later on your tour. So one thing that I wanted to do was to make every show feel unique to not have today's show feel like yesterday's show for me not to say the same thing on stage that i said last night i wanted every show to feel unique and special and personal to the people at that concert and i realized that um my chest is the only part of my body that is not tattooed on the front of my body that humans can see when i am relatively clothed so um I decided to just have a different word written on my chest every day that has to do with something that's going on in the world or something I'm feeling or something specific about that city. And then I try to take a moment on stage, maybe 30 seconds or a minute to discuss something on stage and to use that platform to make an impact on people there. And it's been really amazing to hear, you know, if like a kid will come up and say, um, you know, my, my best friend died of an overdose three weeks ago and you were his favorite band. And then I get on stage and I have Tyler written on my chest and that kid's crying and taking videos and sending it to his mom. And it's like, there's some really wholesome things that have happened just by having that extra personal touch. Having those words or names written, does that kind of help with being like a mental health advocate and being able to express in a different way? Oh, a hundred percent. Like, so a big reason why I have a cross tattooed on my face is so I don't shy away from talking about Jesus. Um, because in the metal community, Jesus is not a well-liked or welcomed figure always. Um, and so now I can't not talk about it. It forces me to talk about it. And the same is true when I play a show and I have stress tattooed or not tattooed, but written across my chest or loss or something. It forces me to have to speak up about it. And it's a good way to hold myself accountable because there are definitely some days on tour where I don't feel like sharing. I'm tired and and then I think, no, I need to make sure that the people at this show get the same quality of performance and impact that other cities do. Going through tours and every night how are you able to handle that mentally and physically without breaking down in a way it's brutal um i think there are a few things that you learn the first of which is um exercise is important so we will we exercise almost every day on tour we go to the gym almost every day and that's something that's like a really healthy way for us to spend the part of the day that we're not at a venue. Um, so that's, <clears throat> that's been a really good outlet for us. And outside of that, <clears throat> we purposely try to spend a lot of time with fans. Like these bands that spend all day in their van or their bus and don't talk to people and then they come out and play for a half hour and go back. It's like, how long can you scroll through Snapchat? you know, for like days on end or weeks on end or months on end. 
I try to spend as much time as possible with fans every day because that's what keeps days from feeling like the day before is like having 30 or 40 new conversations every day. That's, I think staying connected with fans and then staying connected with each other as band members and the other bands that we're on tour with those personal connections definitely sustain us on tour. Talk about the meaning or the background behind your band's name. Yeah. So the band is called prison and we've actually had labels not sign us because of that. We've, they have not liked our name and they were like, you need to change your name. And we said, no. Um, but honestly, it's the, it's a metaphor, uh, like many band names are. Um, and it's really the thinking behind it is your mind can be a prison if you allow it to be. So when I was concepting the band name, I was thinking about how even in prison, they give you time outside of your cell. Like you can go to the cafeteria. Uh, there are times, there are like set times where you can leave your cell. Um, even like, I know that I'm pretty sure when you get your haircut, it's not inside of your cell. There's like rec time where you can play basketball and lift weights. And I've always viewed music as that time outside of my cell. So there are times when I'm alone with my thoughts. Um, I'm kind of stewing or contemplating and you can, I, th I do think it is important to be alone with your thoughts. Sometimes you have to face that stuff, but there also has to be time when you are outside of that confined area. And for me, that's what music is, is like stepping outside of that prison of mind and spending a half hour expressing yourself. During this time with concerts not happening, how are you guys able to change your direction in a way? Or has it been difficult to be able to continue making music during this time? So uh, it's not been as difficult to write music because we're home and we can prioritize writing over rehearsing, prepping for tour, all that stuff. But obviously we are not performing. So actually it has officially been over a full year since I played a concert, which is wild. I've been playing shows for over a decade. And this is the first, this is by far the longest I've gone without playing a show. Um, so that's been really difficult, not being able to perform. Um, and for, for people who are performers and um, especially people who are not casual performers, who, who play a hundred or a couple hundred shows a year, you, it, it's so much a part of your life. It's so much a part of your identity um, that it's difficult not to have that. But at the same time, we saw so many bands trying to do live streaming and putting out like, oh, we're going to do a merch drop every month and stuff like that. And we're just like all of this stuff just isn't real. It doesn't feel real. So we decided let's just focus on writing as much new music as possible and just make sure that by the time music comes back and people are touring again, that we have tons of music ready to go. So we switched from like performance mode to writing mode. And we've actually written a ton of incredible music this year that I'm really proud of. It was just a matter of, you know, for, for a lot of musicians, we see making music, quote unquote, as performing, but it took a mindset shift for us to think like, no, making music is also being in the studio, writing riffs, working together and building a catalog. So we, we had to pivot and I'm, I'm happy that we were able to do that because most of the time, if you're in and out of town on tour, you don't have time to sit down and do real writing sessions. You're always like decompressing from tour or preparing for the next one. During this time, did you kind of realize that maybe you had another opportunity to do something else besides being in a band? So kind of. I am, you can ask my guitarist this, but you shouldn't. I am an idea person. So I love starting stuff. So if you tell me that I can't play a show for a year, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a rapper. And then I'm going to, I'm going to be an acoustic guitarist and I'm going to make all these different bands. Um, so it was, it's been very difficult to not um, fall down all of these rabbit holes and start all of these new projects. Um, but I will say that being able to run Coke Notes full time and not 
have like, oh, I'll be gone for two months and I have to work on tour and I'll be in different time zones. So scheduling meetings will be difficult. To be able to focus fully on Cope Notes, like Cope Notes has grown so much this year. And it is, I believe, by virtue of everything else in my life shutting down. Like I'm not doing most of the things that I normally do. So all of that energy that would go into those things, I've put into the company. How did you come up with the concept of Cope Notes? Well, um, if you want the long version, I encourage you or listeners or whoever to watch my TED Talk because I kind of go into like the 18-minute the version of how it came about. But um, the short version is, um, as I've mentioned, I've been through a lot. I've tried a lot of different treatment resources and I had issues with a lot of them. And so I had this idea that, um, you know, I wanted it to be really easy. I wanted it to be anonymous. I wanted um, improving your mental and emotional health to be incremental and not this magical overnight thing that will never happen. Um, so one day I sent a text message, just one text message um, to 32 people in my phone book to see, and they didn't ask me to send it. I just was like, this is my beta test right now. And I sent the same message to 32 people and half of the people were like, holy crap, how did you know? This is so relevant. And the other half of the people said, holy crap, this doesn't apply to me at all right now, but it totally applies to my friend. Or it applies to last Wednesday, or it applies to my job that I'm applying for next month. So seeing people, seeing the brain interpret an incoming text message within the context of its own life and thoughts and feelings, I was like, man, if I really put more time and energy into this, it could do a lot of good for a lot of people. But also I should say that that's not a magical idea that I had one day. It was on the heels of, I ran support groups and then I started my own peer support group network. And then I started a peer support, like a digital peer support company. And then I started Cope Notes. So it was like, incrementally, I was just looking for ways to improve um, supporting people on a daily basis. What's the kind of feedback now doing it full time that you're getting from the individuals that are partaking in the program? I am super relieved at a lot of the feedback we're getting. Cause when I made cope notes, I was like, I hope this isn't just for people like me. I hope that it's not just going to be helpful for a, a small subsection of people. I want it to be helpful for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of the feedback that we've received is very inspiring and encourages me to keep going. Um, I think what really, we do get a lot of texts that are like, this was perfectly timed and this really helped me. And But I think some of the ones that really stick with me are like, we get some really, really detailed um, testimonials where people are like, you know, this one text made me think of my grandpa and I went to visit his grave and I took my daughter and then I wound up quitting my job because my grandpa didn't want me to do that line of work anyway. And then I finally checked into rehab, which I've been meaning to do. And it's this whole thing, like all of these changes in this woman's life from a text message that we sent that like mentioned popcorn or something. And she's like, popcorn made me think of my grandpa, made me think of this, made me think of this. And to see that people are, are making these like dramatic shifts in their lives is just as appealing as when someone texts us, you know, um, my girlfriend yelled at me today and instead of yelling back, I just stayed calm. I told her we would talk about it when we were both calm and I wouldn't have responded like that six months ago. And I think Cope Notes is helping me chill out. That, those two things are just as rewarding for us. I love the concept of what you're doing with all that because I think the power of a message can do so much. It's almost like when you're scrolling through, for the most part, social media in a way and you see someone post a quote and that mm -hmm. quote relates to something that you've gone through or you might have been thinking about it. It just shows that we all can help each other out even if it's as simple as a word or a message or a post or something. And I think that's what we kind of have to do as a country or even a world nowadays, instead of going in this negative atmosphere that with how social media has been today. 
Yeah, I had considered running social media accounts around this kind of stuff and just I didn't want this content to be housed on those channels. But also think about this too. In order to use a normal mental health app and, or in order to view that social media that has positive stuff on it, you have to choose to go there. You choose to log into an app. You have to choose, like the algorithm is not going to show you stuff that makes you happiest. Right. It's going to show you what advertisers prioritize. So the thinking behind Cope Notes is we want to interrupt your life. Like you're sitting in traffic, you're sitting on the toilet, you're in an argument with your boss, like whatever, whatever situation you're in, we want to basically interrupt your negative thought pattern and provide a catalyst for positive thoughts so that you can train your brain to think in healthier patterns over time. So when I look at Cope Notes and how huge and complicated it feels sometimes to run as a company with all of this technical crap on our back end security and legal stuff. And I think, ugh, sometimes I wish I would have just done it on social media. And then I go on social media for one minute and I'm like, oh my word, I'm so glad that what I built is not housed here. No, I think texting is the right way because a lot of times when our phones are just sitting there, that text pops up, makes you look at it. Mm -hmm. Social media, we're not going to get a notification every single time someone posts something. So I think the strategy with text messages like perfect. When you get the opportunity to do TED Talks or any motivational speaking, what's the mission you want to accomplish when you're talking to those individuals? I think, so I can think of like, the reason I'm making this face because I just thought of 10 things at once. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just list two. I have two primary goals that, that pop into my head every time I have an opportunity to speak. The first of which is I want these people to understand that they are not separate from me. They are not separate from, there's so many times I speak around mental health and people will come up to me afterwards and say, oh, this, you know, my daughter needed this. It's like, no, dude, you needed to hear it too. Like, don't, these people go through life and I do it too. I go through life thinking that things are good for other people. I'm good. My mom needs that. My cousin needs that. My, my coworker needs that. It's like we go through life acting like we're perfect. And it's not because we have these huge inflated egos. It's because it's difficult to recognize ourselves as an individual. Like if you look around a room and you're like, oh, there's seven people in this room. It's like, no, there's eight. There's seven people and you, and you're a person. So that's eight people in the room. People have a difficult time wrapping their head around the fact that they are very much like the people around them. So number one, I want to keep people from disqualifying themselves from the mental health conversation. And number two, this is much simpler. I want everyone to leave different than they came in. So I want literally one person to walk in to whatever I'm speaking at, a conference or whatever, and then a different person to walk out. I want that person to approach things differently for the rest of their lives. I want them to, and same with a concert. I want people to leave a prison concert and call their grandma that they haven't talked to in years because they had a falling out. Or I want them to leave a prison concert and apologize to someone or apply for a college that they were scared to apply to. Like I want people to make changes in their lives that they can make. They're just putting it off or they're nervous or something is keeping them from making them. It's almost like a lot of people are afraid of taking risks in a way. Like they don't want to feel that rejection or getting that answer no. And I've experienced that before, but I knew that to grow, you have to take those opportunities and get that no, because now you can change what you're doing and try to go for it and get that yes that you're wanting. Dude, I have been trying to educate myself about this because as a musician, if you put music out, people will tell you how they feel about it. And we'll put, you know, I'll write an amazing song that I think is amazing. And I put it out and I'm like, this is our best song yet. Watch, everyone's going to love it. And people are like, eh, I liked your last single better. And I'm like, what the heck? That song is not nearly as good. And why don't you like this one? And you have to get to a point where you believe in what you do so much that it is worth doing whether or not people applaud you for it. Like with Coke Notes, 
I have had, you know, maybe Copenos has like 75 enterprise clients or something. That If that sounds like a lot, consider that we've had like, you know, 3,000 clients say no. <laughs> They're like, no, this is stupid or we don't have the budget for this or, or, you know, our employees don't really experience any mental health issues. And I'm like, oh, where did you find them? Another planet? Um, but you, you have to like get to a point where you believe so much in what you do that rejection doesn't deter you from doing it. It just shapes the way that you present it. And over time, actually some of CopeNode's best features have been suggested by our biggest critics. Someone cancels their subscription and says, oh, you know what? I don't want to use a texting platform that doesn't have a setting where I can choose when they can and can't text me because I work night shifts and I don't want to get texts while I'm sleeping. I want to get texts in the middle of the night because that's when I'm awake. And I'm like, what kind of, well, wait a second. Maybe we should build that. That's a really good idea. So we're constantly changing things based on how people complain. And if you frame no's when people say no as an opportunity to improve what it is that you're doing and you love what you're doing, then it's a win-win. It's all about the passion. If you have the passion to do it, you're going to keep on doing it and not let that first no stop you. Because it's almost like for you, if you didn't get signed a record deal or a label, you weren't going to stop playing music. You're just going to go because eventually someone will find you in a way. Dude, even now, like my current band is not signed. We've been, and, and we've done bigger tours than my band, than my old band did when we were signed. Like we've been doing so much better. And you, I think people wait for someone else to green light their idea. Like, oh, I need someone to co-sign on what I'm doing. It's like, no, you don't. You need to put whatever is in your brain out there into the world and watch what people say and then incorporate that feedback and make it better and better. Someone actually said recently, um, they were doing this, oh, I'm totally gonna butcher this anecdote. They were doing a study on um, fulfillment in the brain and like pleasure centers. And they found that basically, doing the thing, having the goal, like let's say um, you want to be a writer and you write 30 minutes a day, you're working on this big memoir. They found that in your brain, the feeling of fulfillment from engaging in the act of writing was just as or even more fulfilling than publishing the book because you love the act and the dream sustains you. Whereas if you do publish the book, it might fall flat because you expected it to be number one on the bestseller list and it's number four. So you experience that as a defeat. Whereas when you're building the thing every day, you're spending your time doing what you love and you are looking forward at this publication date with hope. Could you also relate that to with artists for as yourself where you make a song but you don't feel like it's ready to get out there so you kind of hold it off and keep it hidden somewhere but you enjoyed and you were fulfilled in writing at that time so i actually have the opposite view with music i feel like if you sit on a song for too long you can lose what makes it feel magical um so if you are writing a song for a long time actively that's one thing but if you're talking about writing a song and it's finished and you sit on it, I don't like songs if they sit for too long. Like I want to put something out while I'm still feeling that magic from writing it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You talked about earlier that you are covered in tattoos. What is the meaning behind some of your tattoos and how has it played an impact in your life? Um. Well, let's see. I can start uh, on my right arm up to my wrist. I have uh, these people who are listening to the podcast version cannot see this, but just picture an arm with pictures on it. And that's my arm. Um, I have on my right arm, I have tattoos um, of my nightmares. I have, I had recurring night terrors for years, like sleep paralysis and as part of my own like self-induced exposure therapy, I wanted to tattoo 
my nightmares onto my arm so that I would see them all the time and then not be as afraid of them. And it actually worked. I wouldn't recommend this because <laughs> I don't know that I am like a perfect case study in, in the results of that. But it did really help me because, you know, there was, um, you know, that I really... I probably wouldn't get this tattoo now, but I have a tattoo of a brain surgery on my arm. And because I used to have nightmares of having a surgery performed on me. Um, and as I started getting these tattoos, I stopped having the dream because I would look at it all day, every day. And I'd be like, oh, that's not scary. That's my arm. Um, so that arm, I'm that was definitely when I wasn't as healthy, I made those decisions. So I'm, I'm not recommending that anybody do that. Um, but on my left arm, this is kind of where I'm, I was starting to get a little healthier. So I have my gratitude checklist there. So I'll just explain this one real quick. Every time I think of something that I wish I had or something that somebody else has that I think I deserved or something that I failed to achieve. I make myself list 10 things that I already have that I should be thankful for. And that helps me realize two things. Number one, this is totally attainable because I already have 10 times that. But second of all, even if I don't achieve that one thing, it doesn't matter because I already have 10 times that. So it's like a perspective tattoo. And then my knuckles, I think that's another one of my favorites. My knuckles, how am I going to show you this while holding the microphone? It says, save them. And that's like my freaking motto. Anything that I can do. When I was growing up, my hero was Captain Planet. I'm like, how do I help as many people as possible and bring pollution down to zero? Um, it's been a, a a real driving force in my life to remember that other people exist. I think we get so caught up in our own problems that we forget that the people we love, the people we rely on are probably just as stressed as we are, are probably dealing with a lot of stuff. So having saved them tattooed on my knuckles just helps me maintain some perspective. Like while I have had a difficult 2020, everyone has, and it's important for me to maintain that empathy. I like the meanings behind those tattoos. It kind of shows a personal interaction with it and a big meaning that helps you grow and learn about yourself even more each each day when you're looking at those oh yeah so what does the future look like to you personally and professionally what do you hope to accomplish each day or you have years that's coming up in 2021 um i would love for prison to tour again <laughs> i miss tours um but I'll, I'll aim high because there's no point in aiming low. I want to do my first amphitheater tour in 2021. Um, you got to dream big. I also would love to see if I can integrate Cope Notes into more like health systems. So right now we serve a lot of individuals, like people listening can sign themselves up or their friends and family members. Um, but probably a year and a half ago, we started doing more work with like schools and businesses and, and governments and insurance companies and stuff. And that's, that's a way that I can see us helping like literally millions of people. So my goal for 2021 is integrating Cope Notes into as many things as possible. Like I want people to be able to use Cope Notes through their insurance, through their YMCA, through their school, through their employer. Like I want it to be everywhere and i want people to have immediate access to it and then for me let's see i'm turning 29 um i'm turning 29 next year um i want to own let's see i, saw I want instagram with the car like yeah i want to own this car i'm gonna aim as high as possible it's a lamborghini sion i don't know if i'm saying it right but it's one of my favorite cars. I have like model cars. I'm kind of a nerd. Um, and while I don't know how reasonable that is, I don't care how reasonable that is because you asked what, what the future holds and I'm telling you I'm going to own one of these. <laughs> you never know what can happen. I saw that Instagram post and I'm like, that car is amazing. Or the one that you were showing on your story. I was like, oh, oh yeah. Impressed with that car. 
do you work with a dealership or or a car or it's just like shows that they have and you go out and see those i am such a big car nerd and i go to car shows every single weekend so every saturday and sunday morning i am going to car meets taking as many photos and videos as i can and just appreciating the functional art that is the automotive industry um so yeah if you if anyone listening is going to look me up on instagram you will see me and my advocacy and music you will also see sneakers and cars because I love it. <laughs> the final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give someone to overcome challenges, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Mm, I kind of just want to say don't run away from whatever it is. Um, there have been times in my life where I think, you know, I tried to live in LA for a while, um, because my parents were divorcing and I thought that being in LA would make it so that my parents weren't divorcing or something like it doesn't make logical sense. But at the time I was like, I just need to get away. I need to turn and be somewhere else, but your, your problems will follow you. So don't, don't turn your back on them and run away because they'll always be 10 feet behind you. No matter what you could, you could run a thousand miles and they'll still be 10 feet behind you. So just turn around and deal with it so that you can enjoy that thousand mile trip. Um, just don't, don't close your eyes and bury your head and hope that things will disappear by themselves. You have to turn around, you have to face this stuff. And I guarantee you, you will enjoy your life so much more if you don't waste it running away from your problems, turn around and just face them, do the work that you have to do, and you will be such a happier, lighter, freer person for it. Well, Johnny, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You definitely inspire so many people out there, and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Heck yes. Thank you for having me, dude. I appreciate it, and Happy New Year. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel through the full length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.